All right, I'm going to share a personal story with you. I trust you can handle this. Um, uh, I, I, I was traveling, okay, and I, I had been teaching overseas for a week, and I was, I was just really, really, really tired. And uh, it had been a great time, but I was exhausted, and, uh, and I'm just waiting for the next flight, and I thought, I better go potty before I get on the next flight, right? So I, I went in, and I went to this airport bathroom, and I, I sat down. I had no sooner sat down on the airport potty when I felt something tickling my leg, my thigh. And I looked down, and there was a spider. Oh, yes, a spider on my leg. I screamed, which I'm sure greatly entertained the other travelers, and I vaulted up, and, uh, and this cagey little spider jumped down, and I watched it go right underneath the rim of the toilet. Now, I was safe, but I knew that Shelob was waiting there to kill the next traveler, and so I went to flush that toilet with zeal, right? I just, and, I, and I expected to see this brown arachnid body go flowing down. Nothing. I flushed it again, nothing. This was the Navy seal of spiders, okay? <laughs> she had somehow found a way to put herself between the jets so she wouldn't get flushed away. Wicked. I just, I walked out of there and I went back and I, I heard myself, I slumped down in my seat and I heard myself say, I just want to go home. <laughs> now, that is a feeling that everyone has had. Everyone has known the emotion of longing for home. Whether, whether, you're, um, whether you're ill, whether you're beset by spiders in an airport bathroom, you're, you're, you're sick away at school, I want my mommy. You're in a car wreck, uh, you're stuck in the hospital, you're orphaned, you're waiting on third base, whatever. Everyone knows what it means to long for home, right? We're studying the Psalms of the sons of Korah. And they, they brilliantly, these songs brilliantly engage us with various human emotions. And in Psalm 84, the emotion is homesickness. Everybody longs for a perfect home. The Korahites take that feeling and they show us how to satisfy our pining for home. Open your Bible to Psalm 84 and let's read the first four verses. Psalm 84, the first four verses. For the choir director on the Gitith, uh, that's a musical instrument, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she places her young near your altars, Lord of armies, my king and my God. By the way, Lord of armies is a really cool phrase in Hebrew, uh, Yahweh Sabaat. Um, we talked about it a couple of times ago. You can, you can look it up if you want to get more about that. It's a really powerful way, protective way to describe Elohim, God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually, Selah. Uh, Selah is a Hebrew uh, musical notation, seems to mean stop and think. So let's stop there. As we summarize in your notes, blessed are those who reside in God's house. If you are online with us, we love you and we are so honored to be studying with you. There should be a place wherever you are, there should be a place where your host has a, a link that you can click to get to the notes. Those in, in the auditorium, you got a bulletin when you came in. Blessed are those who reside in God's house. Now, David appointed the sons of Korah as a kind of combination guardian worship service group for the yet-to-be-constructed temple in Jerusalem. But this is really important. We don't know when the group wrote or collected this particular song. Look up here. David began his reign about 1010 B.C., 
But Solomon's temple wasn't dedicated until sometime near 956 B.C. We cannot assume that Psalm 84 is one of those songs that pilgrims sang as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for worship in the completed temple. By the way, there's a whole lot of songs like that. It's absolutely true of a whole section of songs in your Bible called the Songs of Ascent. They were, those were songs that were sung by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. A temple pilgrimage may be the setting for this song, but we can't know for sure. Psalm 84 may have been written during these 60 years before the temple was dedicated. Now, either approach is fine, but here's why I bring this up. To expound the text, the teacher, in this case me, must choose to see this. It can't be both. It's either a song of ascent that is going up to the finished physical temple in Jerusalem, or it is a pilgrim song of all believers as they journey toward heaven. Now, it may be telling that Psalm 84 doesn't say anything about being a, a song for holiday travel to Jerusalem. Look, look at this. Look, all the other songs of ascent tell you that's what they are. So here's some of them. Psalm 121, it says, it, it's, its superscription is a song of ascents. Uh, Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Solomon wrote that one. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. But none of that's in Psalm 84. It says, for the choir director on the Gatith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So all that said, I think it's likely that Psalm 84 is like David's many songs that talk about the temple. David's songs aren't talking about any physical building. It's talking about God's eternal temple. The, the, the temple in mind is not earthly. Instead, the song takes us through our ultimate longing for home, which is the temple of God in eternal heaven. Everyone who's ever been homesick, that's just, that's just a foretaste. That very feeling is just an indication of something much, much deeper and richer, the yearning for our true home with God. And by the way, that longing impacts everything. As the Afghan government uh, crumbled during the U.S. withdrawal, I began to receive... Um, Horrible notes from missionaries and pastors in Afghanistan. During the 18 years of NATO involvement, during your lifetime that they were there, Afghans experienced relative stability and openness toward the West. And, and that allowed tens of thousands of Afghans to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know this, but thousands upon thousands of them responded and became believers in Jesus. But as the, Amen. But as their country fell under Islamic dictatorship at the end of summer 2021, the Christians knew that persecution was steamrolling into their lives. Here are some of the prayer notes that came to me. Uh, an Afghan Christian wrote and said, the first beheadings just happened here. Praise God. Praise God with us that like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. A Western missionary wrote and said, Wayne, it looks like we will get out, but if not, pray we'll stand strong. Things are very scary here. An Afghan pastor said, we thank the Lord that we are connected to God through Jesus. Nothing can change that. Though our house, and by the way, his house is their church, because there are no church buildings allowed in his area. Though our house is burned, we are still praising God because we have unbreakable access to the throne. Amen? Now, a British pastor friend of mine, who is taught often in Afghanistan, he's taught often there, he wrote me, I think, the most powerful and troubling and moving thing that I read all week. He wrote, he wrote this, because they know their true home, Afghan Christians are willing to die as Christ followers. Because my congregation thinks their home is in England, they aren't even willing to live as Christ followers, close quote. 
physically and spiritually, this psalmist cries out with longing for the loveliness of God's house. One word choice is particularly significant. Chatzer, that's your first fancy word for today, boys and girls. The count of three, you get to say chatzer, chatzer. Ready? One, two, three. Chatzer. Chatzer is an old Semitic word. It initially meant just to be present. Get that? Has to do with presence. Um, it first appears in the Bible in Genesis, talking about Ishmael's Bedouin offspring. They, they didn't live in any walled cities. Instead, they, they camped. They were present in different places. Hatser appears 190 times in the Old Testament. Now, it developed into a term, this is pretty cool, for a shared village courtyard. These courtyards they had in Israel where, where families would, would meet, usually around a well, uh, and thus our translation, courts. We translate it courts because of what Hatser came to mean. So think this through. For what is the psalmist, is for what is he longing? For the presence of God. He or she is yearning to be home in that shared space with all of God's family in the communal courtyard. That's the longing here. That's the homesickness. There's one other aspect of Hatser that's especially helpful to grasp. Um, the term is only used of areas outside of a city wall. It's never used of a building. Hatzer is never used of a space that is within a city. Listen to uh, old Dr. Unger. He's great on this. Uh, Merrill Unger wrote, The Hatzer, the settlement, was a place where people lived without an enclosure to protect them. Hatzer denotes a settlement of people outside a city wall. The cities of Canaan were relatively small and could not contain the whole population. In times of peace, residents of the city might build homes and workshops for themselves outside the wall and establish a separate quarter, close quote. <clears throat> of course, I know, I know what you're thinking as you read that. In your um, Shelob voice, you're asking, what does it matter? What's the difference if the court in Psalm 84 is in a walled city or not? <clears throat> Thank you, Shelob. Go back to your toilet. And I'm going to answer that with a question of my own. When you see, here's my question. When you see ruins uh, of, of ancient cities in Israel or other places, which is a sign of greater strength? A city that has walls around it, had walls around it, or a city that had no walls? Which one shows more strength, walls or no walls? Yes, you're right. No walls. It's the exact opposite of what we might think. Think this through. Are there walls around your city? Why not? Because you don't need them. You see, where there is the most economic and military might, walls are not necessary. So when you go to Rome and you see the Aurelian walls, everybody gets excited about the big Aurelian walls around Rome. Those are not signs of Roman strength. Those are built in the third century. They're a sign of Rome's decay. Rome was obviously stronger during the hundreds of years before that, before those walls were needed. Okay? So go back to Hatser. The word means no walls. It's an open courtyard for meeting. Walls aren't necessary because God himself dwells there. His presence is all the protection that anyone could ever need. That open, free gathering of God's family, that's what the writer is homesick for. Consider again the comment by the English pastor. Because they know their true home, Afghan Christians are willing to die as Christ followers. Because my congregation thinks their home is in England, they aren't even willing to live as Christ followers. In their defense, by the way, the people of his country, of England, have not been conquered in over a thousand years. 
in that kind of stable environment, it's rather natural to begin thinking crookedly. Instead of longing for God's true presence, it's easy to get caught up in the earthly present, right? And thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> we, all of us actively abide in God's presence. We don't live according to circumstances here on earth, right? Ouch. Read with me, Jesus' command to us, John chapter 15. Let's read verse 4 all together. John 15, 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's hot sair. John 14, that's hot sair. Jesus is calling for us to dwell, to settle, to abide in the place where no walls are needed, no evil can reach us in God's presence. Amen? But practically, how can one do that? How can, I, how can I live effectively in God's courts when I am, quite frankly, stuck here on earth? The answer is in verse 4. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Selah. Those who continually hallel, praise God, are equated with those who put down roots in God's presence. These, these two things are parallel because that's how Hebrew poetry shows connection. Hebrew poetry shows connection through parallelism. Do you want the protection and peace of God all the time? Then praise Him all the time. So when my car breaks down, I, can't, I must draw near to the Lord. In my homesickness, I can turn to Him. I can abide in His presence with praise. Yes, it starts out as complaining. It starts out as sadness. That's okay. He wants me to engage with Him. But it always turns to praise. If I stay engaged with him, there is pra there's praise that I even had a car to break down. There is praise that God is going to see me through this trial as he has through all the others, right? And, and in the opposite situation, when life just seems grand, we praise God. We dwell with him in praise because he has granted so much joy. And our rejoicing comes because of his provision. That's what Olympic champion Sidney McLaughlin did after setting a new world record in the 400-meter hurdles. Uh, Sidney wrote this on social media, the Olympics of 2021, right after she said this, I no longer run for self-recognition but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything. By grace, through faith, Jesus has given me what, everybody? Everything. Records come and go. The glory of the Lord is eternal. Thank you, Father. Close quote. Marva Dawn was a fascinating kind of goofy writer, um, and, but she gave, I think, the best comment I ever read on verse 4. Marva Dawn said this, The main reason to sing and worship is that God is so singable. <laughs> More than 50 times in the Psalms, we're told to sing praises to God. In a large proportion of cases, we sing simply because of who God is. We sing in worship to, to display, to become more aware of, to embrace, and to respond to the splendor of God. Close quote. One is blessed who resides in God's court, and that residing is directly connected to praise. That's why the songbirds are used as an illustration in verse 3. That birds sing to God in any and every season. There was an early winter morning. Um, uh, Ruth and Billy Graham decided to get up really early, and they went out to their porch uh, in their Montreat uh, cabin and uh, up in the mountains, and they, uh, they had coffee and tea to start their day, wrapped up in blankets. It was a cold winter morning, and they just spent the morning before sunrise just looking at the beautiful, totally quiet 
snowy covered woods in front of them. And the most fascinating thing happened. The minute that the sun touched the tops of the mountains, the whole wood burst alive with birdsong. Ruth went and grabbed a notebook and she wrote this. She wrote down such, such unorchestrated music one has seldom heard. Dawn breeze in the tops of trees, much liquid song of bird, sparrow, robin, tohi, indigo bunting, wren, meadowlark, and cardinal, mockingbird, finch, and when my soul is on tiptoes filled with ecstasy, the turkey gobbles loudly down by the locust tree. The birds cannot help but respond to their creator. But we, we have a choice. As Pastor Chad Bailey pointed out, he sent a note to me. He said this, Blessed are those who dwell in his house and have constant access to the presence of God. These are people ever singing God's praises. This means, of course, that fellowship with God can be the daily, ongoing reality of the Christian. Sadly, such a blessing is often taken for granted. Such vast opportunity for divine communion squandered, close quote. Let us not squander our chance to abide in God. Amen? Okay, let's read the next section, verse 5. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. As we state atop the right side of our notes, those who journey towards Zion are blessed and a blessing. Now, this is fascinating. Okay, the previous section detailed that the person connected to God, right, can live by faith forever in his court. However, there is a not yet aspect to this as well. The believer is also a pilgrim journeying toward a permanent physical life in God's presence. And by the way, that's true whether these verses are describing a Passover journey up to the Jerusalem temple or if they are discussing our movement toward the heavenly Zion. Either way, the one who believes in God is on this journey where the Lord's presence is now, it's a reality, and it's a not yet. Doesn't that sound odd? Now and not yet? Think of pregnancy. Many families in our church are expecting, as usual, pregnancy is a marvelous miracle. Do you ever just think about it? There is a human being living in water, right? The, this isn't Jason Momoa. This isn't Aquaman. This is a human being living, breathing in water. How can that happen? How, can that, how is that child alive in the mother's womb? How? Does anybody know what keeps it alive? That umbilical cord, that cord. That cord connects that child directly with the mother, and the mother supplies every single thing that child needs. We read earlier from John 14. A little bit further in that discourse, Jesus describes our relationship with God using this statement. Look at this. Jesus, here, read it with me. Verse 19, Jesus says this. Everybody together. Because I live, you will live too. Right now, Christians are, are somewhat like unborn babies. Our lives are totally dependent on another. We live and breathe only because Jesus is resurrected and alive. If he lost his eternal life, we would as well. Thankfully, that's impossible. By the way, in that passage, Jesus goes on to describe how believers are connected to the triune God through God the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that sustains us and seals us in our relationship to the Father. Every single baby is on a pilgrimage to birth. 
Now, God takes some to his presence early, which leaves us grieving for ourselves and rejoicing for the child. But most babies finish that, that not yet aspect of pregnancy. They move into the, the here and now. They can now hold the mommy physically. They can be nourished in a way that allows for unbelievable development. Things that, growth that could not happen before. I, I know, growth in the womb is amazing, but it is nothing compared. It's just a foretaste of the increase of the development that is going to come, right? For example, I want to introduce you to an, a member of my extended family, Okay. This is, uh, this is big, beautiful Bo here with his great-grandmother, all right? Bo is barely eight months old, just turned eight months old, and he weighs over 26 pounds. He's very healthy. But I think his mother said it best. His mother wrote me, and she said, and I, and I quote, if I can find it, his mother, his mother wrote and said this, thank God he didn't gain 26 pounds during eight months in the womb. Yeah. There, there is growth now. We've got to, we grow now while believers are in the womb of this life. And there is growth later when we are physically in the family courtyard. As verse 7 says, we are meant to go from strength to strength. And verse 6 describes how that growth occurs. The valley of Baca, you see that? That's not a place. There is no such place called the Valley of Baca. It doesn't appear in literature anywhere. doesn't appear in archaeology anywhere. But as always, Hebrew words tell a story. Baca is a genus of tree. Uh, most likely, Baca describes the genus we call Morris. Uh, the psalmist is probably thinking of this tree, uh, Morris nigra. Uh, these these uh, Black mulberry is the common name. These grow all throughout Israel. Especially, they grow in, in very arid uh, dry, well-draining soil. So as you travel through all these dry places in Israel, there are many, where the, if the soil is acidic, you, you, the, in a place that holds water, you're going to see these black mulberry trees everywhere. Now here's what's interesting about them. They survive where nothing else can, but they don't bear much fruit. They, in fact, they bear very little fruit because they don't get enough water. But look what happens when God's people pass through. They make, I know, they make everything flourish. God's pilgrims cause everything around them to grow as if there were springs. They make even the limited autumn rains work wonders. And I do mean limited. Just look here. Look at the, this is the normal rainfall of the autumn season in Israel. Okay, this is typical rainfall in Israel. September, there's not trace precipitation, and that's only way up in the north. Uh, there, there are zero rainy days in September in Israel. October, you get one rainy day, and they get half an inch of rain is the, is the average. November, two rainy days, that's it, and, and you get an average of one inch of rain. Now, folks, for a tree that is trying to grow in drained soil that is acidic, that doesn't hold water, that is, that is not a lot of water over an entire quarter of the year, especially coming on the heels of the summer when there was no rain and it was really hot. The, but all that changes... When you add just a little drip irrigation, right? You go to Israel today, when those of you who go on, on the trips, um, you're going to see in a lot of the valleys these, these mulberry tree plantations. They produce tons of fruit, beautiful fruit today, because the humans involved are working hard to make the place productive. What about you? As you sojourn through this life, this now and not yet life, as you are homesick for God's presence in, in heaven, as you're living in his presence now and longing for it to come, do the people around you flourish? Do they see, 
Do they experience blessings because of your connection to God? Look at verse 6. It's figurative language, but the idea is very solid. We are blessed to be a blessing. As we pass through, we are supposed to leave things better around us. We grow stronger by making others stronger. We are God's drip irrigation system, okay? I'm just a drip, but I received so many encouraging notes about this. Here's one. This came just this week. Uh, I got this note. This is from a, uh, a city council member, very kind, wrote me and said, I am so thankful for all the love, time, commitment, prayer you have invested into Frisco to make it a great place to live. That is really, really kind. That's verse 6. That's wonderful. But as I got that note, and I praised God for that, I thought, how many people might say otherwise? How many times have I left things worse as I passed through? How many relationships have been drier after my presence? Do Do you realize what happens to the productivity of a land where God's people are not being a blessing? The land dries up. That people become as parched as crops do when their drip irrigation is shut off. Be a drip, okay? That is the pattern, that is the calling, that is the desperate need for the people around us. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. Now, one reason we sometimes fail in that calling to make things better is that life is really hard. Look at verses 8 and 9. Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Say, la. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. The road is long and hard. Genesis 3 promises as much. Generation after generation has experienced that truth. We stumble. We get tripped. Life hurts. That's why the singer cries out to God. He knows God provides, but he cannot help but call in his neediness, his fear, his pain. We, we compared our pilgrimage to babies, so think of another parallel. When a baby cries, and man, do they cry, what, what does it mean? Tell me, what does it mean when a baby cries? What does that mean? Hungry, what else? Tired, not tired, very good, yeah. Uh, needs diaper changed, is dirty, it's run all the way up the back. Um, needs chocolate, yes, all those things are true. Okay, I may have added that one myself. All right, okay, so... Whatever it is, and, and, and there, is, there is a reason babies cry, but whatever it is, the answer always includes you. It always includes the caregiver. Whatever that kid is needing, it has to get it from you. That's why a friend of ours, a friend of ours has a, a ton of kids. I think they're up to 73, and uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But, but they have a lot of children, and he never says they cry. He says they call for me. And and I think that's very true, right? Life hurts. Selah. Think about that. We call for the caregiver. But, but, look at verse 9. Blessed are those covered by Messiah. They are held by the ultimate caregiver. Again, Hebrew parallelism informs us here. Look, look, shielded and anointed one. Those are parallel, right? Consider, look on. Those are parallel. Shielded, anointed one. Well, who's the anointed one? Does anybody know who's the anointed one? Yeah, Messiah, that's whom we know is revealed as Jesus. This anointed one, God himself, by the way, he's a regular theme in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, he's described as a fortress or a shield over a dozen times. God himself protects. In this case, God the Son is a shield over those who trust him. 
There was a Jew named Eger, and he wrote some really fine poetry on this. I'd like you to read with me. Eger wrote uh, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 30, and I'd like you to read, uh, you read the underlying text with me from verses 4 and 5. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is the name of his son, if you know? The word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those covered by the Son, the Anointed One, the Creator, the Messiah. And blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Let's finish our psalm. Verse 10. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. Right after Jana and I started dating, I moved to Europe while she remained in Texas. Our love developed and deepened as we wrote letter after letter to each other. Um, I remember, I, I vividly can remember all those nights sitting alone in my office in Germany after all the campers went to bed and just reading and rereading the latest love letter from Jana. And there was one abiding desire in my soul. I just wanted to be wherever she was. I wanted to be there. That's the feeling in verse 10. This writer would rather be with God for one day than spend a thousand days somewhere else. He or she would rather stand outside the threshold of God's heavenly Mount Zion home than live in the finest homes of Bedouin travelers on earth. <laughs> Don't be tents. Well, who would want to live in a tent? That, those were homes, okay? These are, these are Bedouin. That's a fancy home. Now, in that culture, verse 10 is really a bombshell of a statement. To stand beyond the threshold is a sign of being outside the family. It's, it's not a sense of rejection so much as, as just not really fitting in. He's saying, even if I don't belong in God's family courtyard, I would rather be as close as possible. Kind of like this lady outside the closed chocolate shop here. Um, he just wants to be as close as possible. Now, it's figurative symbol, it's, it's syllogism. It's not a real syllogism. The image is made up to emphasize the point. I would prefer not belonging there than belonging here on earth where everyone is sinful. I love Pastor Chad's comment he made in our series notes. In fact, I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Chad wrote this. He said, we are always walking with God toward God. God is, after all, the prize. This final section describes the person who is content in all things as long as he has God. He prefers one day in the courts of the temple to a thousand anywhere else, and he prefers even the lowest task of service in the house of God to any gain he might have if he were in the tents of wickedness. Close quote. I think the closest thing to verse 10 in, in Western culture is probably the character Freddie Einsford Hill in, in the story My Fair Lady, the play or the movie. How many of you have ever seen My Fair Lady? Okay, so many of you have. So, Freddie Einsford Hill is this, this weird character who is totally content to be blocked out of Eliza Doolittle's life as long as, he can be, as long as he can be on the street where you live. People stop and stare. They don't bother me. It's a great song. Anyway, um, the, he, that, that's verse 10. And again, in the scripture, verse 10 is hyperbole, uh, as it's probably supposed to be in, in Alan Lerner's uh, play. For the person who trusts God Look what the text says. He or she has an eternal home. What's it say in verse 7? They will appear before God in his heavenly Zion. 
The believer has the Lord. It has both sun and shield. The believer has life-giving sunshine from God and also protection from scorching. They receive good when they live out their faith with integrity. They're happy. Now, our happy is the Hebrew ashrei. Uh, we'll make that your second fancy word for the day, okay? Ashrei on the count of three. One, two, three. Ashrei. Very good. What was wrong with this side? That was, that was so weak. You guys did great. You take this part off. You guys, here we go. Don't applaud yourself. That's over the top. One, two, three, Ashrei. One, two, three. Okay, that's better. Middle, you're still letting me down, but we'll let you go. All right. Ashrei, it doesn't just mean temporary good feeling, kind of like we usually use the word happy today. Ashrei is a deep blessing. It, it means being highly favored. It appears three times in this one brief little song. My pulpit team chimed in with some really great thoughts on verses 11 and 12. Um, one member wrote me and said, Ashrei says that unlike any other religions or gods, Yahweh is reachable and loving and rewarding. Amen. That is true. Nothing else like it. Another reminded me, and I'd forgotten about this, about the scene in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Let me see. Okay, so quite a few of you have. Um, there's a scene in that Christian is the character, and he is on a pilgrimage journeying to heaven, to, to the heavenly place, the, the uh, eternal city. And... Um, and on his way, there's this scene where he meets with, they turn two angels, and, and his companion and Christian, his companion is Hope at that point, are told this. This is really cool. In the holy place, you shall receive comfort for all your toil and joy for all your sorrow. You shall reap what you've sown, the fruit of all your prayers, tears, and suffering for the king along the way. You shall wear crowns of gold and enjoy the constant sight of the holy one for there, and here the angels quote the Apostle Paul, you shall see him as he is. Awesome. Those who trust in the Lord are truly blessed. And how do all these blessings come about? Look, 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 the end of your, the end of your text. By God's grace through faith. Where is happiness found? In God's grace through faith. What provides the power to live with integrity? God's grace through faith. Let's pray about that. Pray with me, please. Lord, I, pray, I want to pray, first of all, for anyone, anyone sitting with us, wherever they may be, that does not know Jesus as Savior, that you will bring them to you right now. Thank you that you have made a way. I pray that you walk them through it. Friend, listen, Jesus, Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah, Savior. He is the creator who, who comes into his creation. In case you don't know the, the, the true story, Jesus, God the Son, came to this earth because he loves you. And he chose to die on a cross to pay for your sin, for my sin, so that everyone who believes in him could have their sin. That which keeps us from a holy God, and it must keep us from a holy God, he paid for it since he himself is holy. That removes it as far as the east is from the west, says the scripture poetically. So if you trust in Jesus, you will appear before God in Zion. If you've never done so, believe in Jesus right now. Trust him for your salvation. If you just, if you just trusted Jesus as Savior, you're here in the auditorium, raise your hand. If you're online, uh, make sure you say something to your host. We want to rejoice. Good for you. We want to rejoice with you. 
And now, Lord, I pray for all of us here who are believers in Christ, that we will trust, even in harrowing times, even as we walk through the valley of Baca. Lord, please let us change us so that we become people who rejoice, who who praise, who are trusting in you. We need it, and the people around us desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen.